Welcome to the Breathe, Sleep, and Be Well podcast, where we uncover a hidden epidemic right under our noses, an epidemic that most often begins right after birth. We aim to engage in casual conversation in a way that raises awareness, exposes misinformation, and challenges us to understand that just because something is common does not mean that it is normal. There is a difference between not being sick and being well. In our goal of maintaining a casual conversation format, we hope that you, our listeners, will engage in the conversation through our platform. Our cardinal goal is to provide easily accessible yet accurate information to the public at large and facilitate a discussion between the healthcare provider and the patient in a way that targets root cause of common diseases and dysfunction rather than merely managing the symptoms. I'm your co-host, Brendan Cruz, and I hope to bring an understanding of social media and communication to highlight my father's journey over the past 15 years. And this is my co-host, Dr. Mark A. Cruz, who has been connecting the dots and teaching on this complicated subject since 2006. To learn more about Dr. Cruz, view his curriculum vitae at markacruzdds.com slash biographical hyphen profile. Without further ado, Here's the conversation. So, so tell me a little bit more about what you're saying about sleep. Well, you know, um, sleep disordered breathing is probably better described as breathing disordered sleep. Because if you're not breathing well, then you're not going to sleep well, especially if you're healthy. What I mean by that is that means you have a healthy autonomic nervous system. So it's really the software, if you will, that runs everything behind the scenes. The autonomic nervous system is the software? That, that it essentially runs everything behind the scenes. Okay. I mean, as a description, right? Right. So it's, it's something that we're not consciously aware of. Like, you're not consciously aware right now of the rate that your heart is beating because it's kind of being run in the background, mm-hmm. if you know what I mean. So, um, <clears throat> but there are two sides to it. There's the fight or flight, or what's called the sympathetic side, and then there is the parasympathetic side, which oftentimes is described as rest and digest. Because when we're relaxed and chilled, we digest better, we, we um, have those, uh, those functions, parasympathetic functions work better. If you're scared, you're afraid, you're not really hungry. So when you say that, like, for modern living, 90, 99% of the time we're in that uh, rest and digest uh, kind of well, phase? Well, I, I like to just put it more in terms of just the way mammals have evolved, that um, mammals are dr- driven by this autonomic nervous system, which, you know, 90, 95% of the time uh, has evolved to live on the parasympathetic side of the system. Right, it's very rare that you're getting chased by a tiger. Right, right? right. the fight or flight's to save your life, to get you out of a pickle, if you will. Right, okay, but that 90 to 99% of our day, I think there's something interesting you could say about that, though. That rest and digest that we Well, I, so, th- so that's like, um, if you're in an environment as a hunter or a gatherer, mm-hmm. right? Let's say you're backpacking and, you know, most of the time you're in parasympathetic uh, function. Uh, but if you hear a bear in the woods, you might tr- that might trigger a sympathetic response. But it doesn't happen that often, right? Right. But I want to talk about our modern living. Yeah. So I modern li- something living interesting it, you could say about that. Right. Our, our, our modern environment really has, if you start thinking about it, has radically changed um, the way we live from that Paleolithic period going back 70,000 years, right? When we lived in small groups of eight to 10, maybe 12 people, you call it a clan. Um, We didn't really live in groups much larger than that till later. Um, but for the most part, we lived as hunters and gatherers in small groups out in the wild. 
uh, were pretty much had control of the situation except for a wild animal or a rival clan would threaten the group. Most of the time you were just focused on hunting and gathering, you know. And so uh, today in our modern environments, we just don't worry about that. You know, our form of hunting and, and gathering is basically driving up to a McDonald's, right? Hmm. Um, and, and we've set everything up to where we control our food supply, wittingly and unwittingly, and uh, we get what we need when we want it um, and and yet there's this low grade stress that is in our modern environment it, you know you could say the obvious like let's say the traffic you got to get somewhere in time and you hit traffic that's a low grade stressor mm-hmm. you might control it but you know it is a low grade stressor and that's the difference between our modern environment and the environment from which we evolved. Okay, so I'm going to ask you more about how that affects our health, but I do want to go back to something. You said we were living in tribes, of really small tribes, like maybe 12 people. Yes. Um, what kind of effect does uh, urbanization and a denser population have on us now, on our health, mental, physical? Well, yeah, I mean, you've skipped way forward from mm-hmm. this environment to the, uh, our current environment. So are you saying Can we I suggest kind of evolved well, to get into the, the denser living or, or? Well, maybe uh, a better way of answering your question, and maybe it's a little bit more long-winded, but it, it would explain things a little bit better, is if we just kind of back up and say, well, what was the journey from living in those small packs, if you will, to current urban living. Um, and so we, we know <clears throat> that about 10 to 12,000 years ago, we settled from hunters and gatherers, we settled into what's called the Fertile Crescent in Africa, uh, where the Tigris and Euphrates River uh, is. And, and that was the beginning of civilization. So that's called the agricultural Revolution. Can I ask you something? Sure. So we're in the year 2000. 22. Yeah, 22. But are we more like in the year 12,022? If that's when human civilization started and if that's when we started the the counter? Are we 12,000 years from what you're talking about? Uh, 10 to 12,000 years ago is the consensus. Okay. Okay. And at that point, we started farming. We started learning that if we planted grains, that we can actually have seasons and pick them. And then what that forced us, well, it didn't force us, but what it allowed us to do is instead of having to wander to find our food, we, we could put it in our right. front yard, if you will. And so we started settling and building uh, settlements, right? And, and, uh, and then harvesting the food and storing it and that went on for some years. And then we started domesticating animals, bringing them in and growing them. And, and you know, we talk what we call farming, right? So that brought on a number of challenges and transitions uh, that we adapted to, right? And then from there, everything was pretty much uh, status quo. There weren't big inflections and changes in our environment, so to speak until about the Industrial Revolution. That was about 500 years ago. So a, this big span, if we're gonna uh, graph this out from hunters and gatherers for you know, uh, tens of thousands of years to relatively short period of time, and then 500 years ago, everything uh, has happened even faster. Yeah, it's kind of like not that much happened in this long span, and then all of a sudden we're quickly I mean, 500 years, even last 20 years. Yes, and even in this last 500 years, yes, the last 100 years has accelerated. So it's not like this linear acceleration. It's a logarithmic, and and we could see how it it is exponential. And so, or at least that's what the data is supporting. If you look at the uh, what I've talked about before, 10 top causes of death, 
in modern man globally as cataloged by the World Health Organization. So we've actually changed it to ironically making life better, but it's actually created stresses that we were not adapted to. It was not an environment that we evolved from for hundreds of thousands of years, certainly tens of thousands of years in a very short period of time. We have controlled our environment so much so that, yes, it's made things better, but it's created a lot of, of problems. And, and so, um, it, you know, that's, that's what we're looking at right now in our healthcare system is that we're dealing more with conditions that are called non-communicable diseases that are preventable that just didn't exist, you know, a hundred years ago, very much. Like what, what are we talking about? Type here? two diabetes, okay. heart disease. Okay. You know, all the, we would die of trauma, accidents, war, parasitic infections, you know, uh, 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 snake bite, you know, something like that. But now in large numbers, we're dying of chronic disease. And it's, 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 it's now what's, what's the, uh, the modern disease du jour, really even in the last 20 years, like ADD, ADHD, all our mm. kids have it. Uh, how about peanut allergies? You know, kid will die of anaphylactic shock just being exposed to a peanut. I mean, that didn't happen certainly when I was a kid. Really? Now they've got school policies on what could be allowed in a classroom or on campus or whatever. So start Five, thinking about it, right? 500 years ago, it was unlikely that there were peanut allergies? No, there weren't. Really? No. Interesting. No, no, absolutely not. What about ADD and ADHD? Well, I mean, years ago? It, it, no, it, it, it just didn't exist. Okay, so you could say, well, we just didn't realize it or we just didn't recognize mm -hmm. it. In actuality... Um, it's a condition that's been defined as something that's characterized by specific behavior. Like you're, you can't task. Mm -hmm. You're constantly jumping up all over. You can't think linearly. Um, you're fidgety. Um, you can't pay attention. Well, there, there's kind of a popular theory that's developed where that ADD, ADHD is, is almost an adaptation and like they're saying it's a it's a good thing or it was a good thing 500 years ago and only now in our modern environment where we have to sit still in the classroom is it considered bad but they, they think it's just an adaptation um, um, for hunter-gathering society. What, what do you think about that? Well, I, I, I think what you just described is a qualitative description. What I mean is it's quite subjective versus quantitative. So like you fidgeting and, and not being able to pay attention on one thing. Right, those are char observ observable characteristics, but let, let's get into something that's more quantitative that you can actually measure. Okay. So if we're defining this condition, um, you can actually take a functional MRI and you can actually see how the prefrontal cortex, which is largely drives executive function, you know, tasking, like during the day, it's a higher order, uh, uh, function, it can actually be measured uh, with uh, uh, this technology. And they've done those studies. I, I think previously I talked about the sleep restriction study with kids that um, actually tested poorer cognitively when, they, when their prefrontal cortex was lighting up uh, as could see, be seen in a functional MRI what versus a control. What does that imply that the prefrontal cortex was lit up? What it's very that? inefficient uh, um, processing. Mm. So it, normally the brain processes, it's, it, the, the thinking is is very efficient. You could very quickly, you don't have neurons that are an asynchronous function, that they're just, they're just very active to try to process inefficiently in comparison to somebody that um, does not have that problem cognitively. They're very efficient in their thinking, their thought. They can formulate uh, sentences. And you, if you looked at that brain scan in okay. comparison of, of uh, somebody that was diagnosed with ADD, ADHD, you, you don't see that kind of... Uh, uh, you see different activity on the yeah, brain scan? Yeah, it's very different. It's, 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 it's different. So it's been measured. So ADD, ADHD can be defined quantitatively 
and qualitatively. Well, yeah, so it's been measured in studies, but when you go in or your kid goes in to get diagnosed potentially for ADD and ADHD, do they do brain scans or do they? Well, no, so usually it's uh, uh, a behavior. Let's say it's a parent or a teacher that's saying, hey, your kid can't sit still, they're always interrupting, Um, They can't formulate, they're fidgety, they're very hyperactive, Mm -hmm. um, hence the H part of the ADHD, right? So what's going on with them? And so then what they do is their battery of of testing, if you will, that gives a profile with a certain score, okay? And so so that would be more of a, a qualitative way, although it is measuring something quantitatively. But then you could also take a brain scan, if you will, that could actually see that. So uh, again, it, it, it appears that there's strong evidence that it's not really a, a frank neurologic condition as much as it's sleep deprivation. Really? Yes. So these children that the reason why they can't focus and the reason why they're hyperactive it's almost uh, what's called idiosync. Uh, it's almost um, uh, it doesn't make sense. Why? Why would they? Why would they have this um, hyperactivity? Where if they uh, were very calm and able to be thoughtful and put their their thoughts together, that's a brain that's well rested. So let's go to sleep. That third of our life that nature provides, that we spend, uh, that's very important. As I said before, just because we don't really understand it doesn't change the fact that it's super important in brain function. So the brain is healed, if you will, during sleep. And it's not just sleep, it's quality sleep. So quality sleep is represented by a specific sleep architecture that could be measured in a sleep study. There's a certain amount of light sleep, about 50% of the time, we're sleeping in a light state of sleep called N2 sleep. And then we transition to um, N3 sleep, which is that slow wave delta sleep where uh, the glymphatic system of our brain starts working and cleansing our brain, if you will. The studies to actually show that, we could talk more about that. And then REM sleep, so there's non-REM and REM sleep. If you don't have the proper proportion of those sleep stages, um, you will wake up not the best version of yourself. Your function, diurnal function that next day, won't be um, the most effective for you as it could be. Although people, you know, they're up all night long doing all-nighters and and doing whatever it is, but their performance does suffer the next day. So you were describing, that's what proper sleep looks like, and not everyone has that. We're told to get eight hours of sleep uh, per night, but what you're saying is that someone who's getting eight hours of sleep might not be getting eight hours of Quality sleep, right. and that makes a difference. Okay, more so, often than not. So why aren't they getting quality sleep? Well, so in order to have, in order for your brain to allow you or allow itself to get into that optimal sleep pattern, it has to feel safe. Let's just describe it that way. It has to be. Uh, okay. uh, it has to feel safe based on the autonomic nervous system, and w- what is the most important function that allows the brain to operate optimally moment to moment is the proper optimal delivery of oxygen okay through right. breathing okay, through breathing sense. function taking the next breath optimally so uh, when you fall asleep and you start snoring that's less than optimal because that's the sign of an airway that's collapsing the snore that we perceive is the vibrating of this soft tissue from the turbulence in the breathing, and that actually has an arousal effect so to the brain. S- you're snoring, your airways collapsing. Yes. What does that look like physically? Well, I think that if you were to to uh, actually look at 
a sleep endoscopy, a drug-induced sleep endoscopy. We call those a DICE study. You would see this vibration and, and, mm. and you'd see the turbulence, but you can also measure it with um, cone beam tomography, computer tomography, where you can actually see the airway has this cobblestone appearance that's very inflamed. Mm. And, and so uh, a healthy airway that's patent and open with laminar airflow allows for optimal uh, sleep. And so uh, it starts with nasal breathing. So if you're mouth breathing, there's more collapsibility downstream. Mm. We're supposed to breathe through the nose. So if, you're, if you have a small, narrow uh, nasal fossa or you have polyps or um, a deviated septum, right? You have a number of conditions, swollen turbinates, et cetera, et cetera. You're, not, you're gonna have turbulence called inspiratory flow limitation. Okay, you might be more likely to snore in other words. Well, no question. Okay. But also it will prevent your brain from getting into that consistent, deep, quality mm. sleep night after night. Mm. And so, yeah, people sleep. They may say, I slept 10 hours and I feel like I woke up like I was hit by a truck. Mm. Well, what's going on there is they're, they're, they're have a lot of stress, ironically, while they're sleeping. Physiologic stress, not psychological stress, that prevents them from... Uh, being able to feel refreshed, in a good mood, no anxiety, no depression. They're sharp, right? So it's not just sleep quantity, it's also sleep quality. And so it, it differs for an infant, the first year of life, versus a toddler, versus a a growing child during the formative years, versus a full-blown adult versus a senior. So there are nuanced differences within those populations. It's very, very critical early in life for the infant, for instance, they're gonna be sleeping in a deeper um, uh, stage of, of N3 sleep, that deep sleep longer while the brain is rapidly developing. After the second year of life, the brain's pr pretty much fully grown, right? So. Uh, but if we get into like teenagers, teenagers psychosocially, they like to stay up later. Their, their sleep cycle will change from middle school to when they start transitioning towards puberty. Mm -hmm. there's, there's a lot that's going on. A lot of growth hormone, the sex hormones, of course, the, the regulation of the metabolic hormones. And if... if uh, and then psychosocially, especially nowadays with social media, so we could talk about environment like you know, smartphones and, and social media that's keeping people up on their machines, the blue screens and all that. But let's just put that aside even before that. It, it, they're just more social. Like, you know, okay, not to date myself, but like when I was growing up, you know, we didn't have the smartphones, but you know, you wanted to talk to your friends more often. You'd be on the phone in your bedroom talking to your friends, staying up, you know, talking about you're finding your identity, what are called psychosocial um, uh, psychosocial uh, uh, factors. That's normal, right? And parents would say, well, get off the phone, uh, get your homework done. And they, they would kind of try to put boundaries and, 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 and mitigate it to, to some extent um, to be able to get to sleep. So that's all normal. If you didn't have any of that, I would say to uh, a teenager growing up, if you want to maximize your uh, uh, metabolic brain, uh, body development, sleep is super important. How you do in school, respect sleep. We just are in a society that hasn't really respected it that much because you sleep, you sleep, right? Oh, I'm taking four AP classes in uh, an eighth optional you know, class because I want to get ahead. Um, and, and so you can use that as an excuse for why you're not getting enough sleep quantity. And, and that may be so, but still, you need that sleep. Okay, sure, we're just talking about quantities of sleep, how many hours of sleep, but how can someone improve their, their uh, quality of sleep? What can well, they do? It, it well, seems like it starts with the nose breathing, but. 
hundred percent. How can they achieve that? Because when I when I fall asleep, I have no control if, if like my mouth comes open, I start snoring. I'm I'm not conscious. Well, well, certainly you do have control uh, to change that, but there are a number of things under the heading of sleep hygiene. You could Google it, and there there's a lot of information on proper sleep hygiene. I'll, I'll just sure it's like name keep off the a few. room cool and right and, keep the room yeah. uh, 65 degrees cool. You know, you no can have a weighted blanket hour. during the winter. Um, <clears throat> uh, making sure that you put at least two, uh, uh, preferably three hours from when you finish eating and drinking and falling asleep so your stomach is not distended with food. Because um, you lay down, then, then you can have a risk for reflux and things like that. Uh, making sure that your lips are together, tongue on the roof of the mouth, you're breathing through the nose. So things you could do is, you know, uh, with how you present, maybe uh, breathe rights and taping, things like that. I just see those as band-aids mm -hmm. to a bigger problem. What's the bigger problem? The bigger problem is how your face developed. So let's say you're a teenager. Okay. Let's say you're a teenager. Now you're in braces. For what? To treat crooked teeth. I mean, this is the standard that we are. But crooked teeth is not a tooth problem. It's actually an orthopedic or facial growth problem. I mean, we always, you know, are concerned about making sure that we grow optimally with our axial skeleton, how tall, staying fit, working out, doing all that. And we assume the face is just growing the way it's supposed to, right? Genetically based on our, uh, our, our parental input, if you will. But nothing could be further from the truth. In fact, it's radically changed in the last 500 years, and it's accelerated. So you're saying how our face grows is not really as determined on uh, genetics as we thought? Not as we thought. Wow. There's lots of data now. I mean, you know, when I was going through dental school and, and even up to recently, the specialty of orthodontics has had very, very big fights in dealing with this within the, within the academic community, saying, well, we have nothing to do with it. Actually, there's much more data coming outside of dentistry, looking at anthropology and, um, and, and in medicine to actually show that there has been a radical departure from the way our faces develop. I mean, the, the uh, amount of room to accommodate all 32 teeth with enough room left over, the angle of the jaw, the, the, the projection of the face forward, high cheekbones, wide palate. Uh, well, why is that all important? Well, it happens to be that it has, uh, it, it's largely dictated for how we breathe early in life. Mm. Uh, mouth breathing is a big problem because then uh, we grow more vertically versus forward and, and wide. And so now they're compensations, right? And so one of them is the teeth don't have enough room to fit in to the arches so that are there. And they get yeah. We used to think that was genetic, that like, there, there was this like third molars is kind of a rite of passage. When you're in college, you have your third molars removed because we quote unquote evolved to where we don't need it. There were these theories. Absolutely nothing could be further from the truth. It was that there was not enough development. That is strange to me, is, is why are we getting these extra molars in the back and then getting them pulled? We would have never had to get yeah, them pulled. Of course. Pulled. So, so Same thing with tonsils, to be honest. Mm -hmm. I mean, we, there, there are all these things that modern allopathic medicine has solved without really asking the question, why? You kind of you touched on this, but I, I do want to... I, I do want to ask the question. So you're saying our environment is changing how our face is developing. And then yes. as a result, that's affecting our ability to, to breathe through our noses in the night. But what would a, a human 500 years ago look like compared to what we look like today? What are some major differences you would see? Oh, it, it's significant. In fact, uh, National Geographic actually published probably about a year, year and a half ago uh, on a 4,000 year skull mm -hmm. uh, of a female mm -hmm. that uh, can't exactly remember where it was found. I think it's somewhere in Europe and then they actually fleshed it out, you know, so they can, they have technology to be, to put flesh on it, like, like the, you know, wax museum, you know, where you can actually, yeah. and based on just a biologic understanding of how the relationship between soft tissue muscles and bone, 
And if you were to see um, that 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 face, it, it would look significantly different than um, a matched female of, of a similar age. Okay, very very face? different. So she had a much wider palate, um, higher cheekbones, uh, more what we call protrusive, a more forward. Uh, looking face actually was really good looking absolutely no dental crowding plenty of room so straight th- teeth straight teeth 4, 32 32 teeth with room left behind mm. we see that rarely nowadays really it's rare if you if you don't have to get braces but you're saying it might have been the opposite well there was no need for braces back in the day and we know that from digs of of uh thousands of of different uh, 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 groups of people that uh, anthropologists and uh, paleontologists have have gone and looked, except for in a few populations that there was a known, they were were known to be sick, either because there was some kind of a plague or the population was sick for some reason. But that was the exception. But that made their, that showed in their teeth. Well, it showed in their whole bodies uh, and, and, and the face part of it. Yeah, and the point is, it was in those specific situations that you would see maybe dental crowding and you'd see um, faces that were not what would be considered uh, more optimal like we've seen in thousands and thousands of skulls. I actually have um, uh, working with uh, uh, some colleagues that... Um, have looked at hundreds of skulls from the early medieval period where we're actually measuring uh, specific measurements of the face in comparison to our modern population. We're actually looking to publish that at some point using cone beam tomography as a matched, you know, looking at our current population of patients that we treat in comparison. And it's not even, honestly, it's not even close. Um, The angle of the jaw, the width of the jaw, the um, length of the arches, uh, the teeth being crowded. I mean, a female, average female, early, early medieval period had a significantly wider palate than most NFL football players, as an example. If you actually look at the spreadsheet and look at those measurements that we've been making. Palate meaning the top of their mouth. The, the top of, of their mouth, mouth the roof of their mouth. Wider. Right. So okay. think about it. The roof of the mouth is the base of the nose. And more importantly than focusing on the palate, I focus on the base of the nose. You could breathe easier. It's like having a permanent breathe right. There are no deviated septums. Mm-hmm. A septum is deviated because there's a distortion in the craniofacial growth, by and large. People think, oh, it's because I had a bad football, you know, a football injury. No, that's a broken nose. That's not a, sept- a you know, deviated septum, although you can end up having a problem in the more exterior aspect of the nose. When I'm talking about the uh, deviated septum, I'm talking about on the inside where the nose isn't, right? Where there's not a cartilage, soft tissue part. I'm talking when you look inside, if it's deviated, uh, that's because the palate didn't drop down. It, 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 It didn't develop properly. And so what happens is you end up having more problems breathing on one side so of the nose. if you have crooked teeth, like you needed braces, mm-hmm. it's probably pretty likely that your palate was not formed properly. Is that true? Yeah, uh, uh, very high. Uh, yes, absolutely. Okay. It's a domino effect. So the 22 bones that make up our head and our face, right? And, and <clears throat> if you start getting a distortion in uh, like the temporal bone because the baby was, uh, or as you're growing, you're sleeping on one side. It, it kind of has this ripple effect, and you could see a distortion. I mean, if you start looking at people, okay, so that's one of the things is looking at facial aesthetics, looking at attractiveness, looking at broad smiles. Um, so I'll do my clinical photography, and I'll, I'll analyze it and talk to my patients about it. So I'm not going to treat the teeth per se. That's just one part of a complex system. I'm going to actually base my diagnosis on facial aesthetics, right? And so how the face forms, the bone that house the teeth. And our therapies, our interventions to correct it um, are to actually look at root cause 
versus just to try to straighten the teeth out, which is unstable. I mean, most people have gone through braces. Uh, now they went through braces and they, they, they relapse. Well, they have to wear a retainer. Or, or they have to wear a retainer. Back, yeah. Oh, like, you know, yeah, I'm, that's cheating. You should never have to wear a retainer. The reason why I have to wear a retainer is because it's very unstable. Well, they never solved the underlying problem. They gave you crooked teeth exactly. in the first place. So you're just going to go back to having crooked exactly. teeth. That makes sense. Exactly. And and this is not this is nothing I'm making up. If you look at the literature going back a hundred years, when otolaryngologists and 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 dentists, the dental profession worked more closely together, looking at an, taking an integrated approach. Um, to uh, the nasomaxillary complex, the nasomaxillary, it's, it's this complex that holds upper teeth is a complex that also includes the nose. We tend to artificially divide these boundaries where the ENT works above the palate the, or the, the dentist or orthodontist below that, but that's just not the way the body works. And we have to go back more to a uh, integrated approach why? Because it really portends to toward health and wellness. So you're kind of saying that uh, the healthcare system right now, it's really like all these different specialists that are like really good at doing specific things, but they don't really integrate and work together, right. is that what you're saying? Right. Okay. Very siloed. Okay. It's just the way um, the fiduciary event occurs with the, between a healthcare provider and a patient. You know, I mean, it's kind of the ugly secret we don't really talk about um, where you have a healthcare system that has largely become very expensive, highly driven by the pharmaceutical industry. I'm not saying that, you know, we, we do need medications, but uh, we do have a lot of uh, pharmaceutical solutions to a lot of signs and symptoms, but oftentimes we're not getting to root cause. So we have to kind of step back and look at our environment. What's changed? And that's what this podcast is really looking at are where we where we evolved from to where we are now. People will say, well, we're living longer than we ever did before. And that's not necessarily true. That we could kinda, be debated. We kind of are. Yeah. The, right. The debate is that they, they're factoring in like uh, infant death into like the old uh into their lifespan, so like that brings the average down. It, is that is that well? It, it's it's true. I mean, you you take statistics. You know, you you could do a lot with the numbers and manipulating that. But let, let's just step back and just say, in general, people will say, well, you know, you know, what are, what are you talking about? We're living longer. Actually, we're living longer, sicker. I mean, people are getting sicker. We're not defining it as sick as sickness. So you know, uh, a teenager that has fatty liver and um, has type 2 diabetes, which by the way is quite common now, it wasn't 50 years ago. Um, and you can't just blame the food supply. But um, if, if you look at that individual, that person can live up to 80, 90 years old, but at what cost? Okay, right. So that was interesting though, you said you, you can't blame the, the food supply? Yeah. Really, I mean, that's, I think most people think when you have issues, uh, um, with like insulin resistance, it's how you're eating uh, based on our environment, right? We're talking about environmental factors. You're saying that's not, it's not totally true. It's not the Well, I, I'm just saying we oversimplify it and there are a thousand different opinions with evidence to support um, that um, uh, philosophy, if you will, whether, whether it's, you know, living, you know, a keto diet or whether it's, you know, um, a whatever kind of diet that's out there. It's a billion dollar industry. Um, I, I'm not saying it's not a factor, but it's still, I'm going to argue, not addressing root cause. No question that our food supply is a major risk factor for a lot of uh, modern disease, but that's what everyone's talking about. And I, I will argue they're missing the boat. So uh, it, I, I will just describe it as fuel on a fire that's already burning. So, you know, you could throw gas on a fire and say, look, look, it caused the, it didn't cause the fire. You know, the fire was smoldering way, way below. So I'm going to go back to the moment of birth. Okay. And Is look that at when our, the fire started? Yeah, uh, potentially, actually, the beginning of the third trimester of life. Uh, and 
we're not going to, you know, go down that rabbit hole in this podcast okay. right now. But that's the thing we certainly can look at the evidence of what what's what's happening. But um, from how we're born, you know, the whole thought of you know nursing versus not nursing, C-section versus vaginal delivery, uh, binkies, um, stomach versus back sleeping. Uh, many, many, many things that can contribute to uh, going down a path that I like to call it a spiral that uh, uh, slowly starts becoming a bigger and bigger health risk factor. Um, The kinds of food, not just the nutrition in the food, but how you chew it. Um, there, and there are lots of books that have been written on the effect of fire on our food, on our gut, forks over knives, how we chew, how we cut it up. Um, so, yes, those are all important factors. But I'm going to go back to how our faces grow craniofacially. It's, it has a, a huge effect on how long you're going to live and the risk for acquiring chronic disease. There are many studies to show that the first thousand days of life largely determine your life expectancy and risk for acquiring chronic disease that is preventable. That's from implantation to about the end of the second year of life. That's about, by the way, that's about the time that the brain has finished growing. So do those first thousand years determine how you look too? It's those environmental no question. factors. That's interesting. 100%. Okay. 100%. And the pediatricians, you know, it, it, I talk to moms all the time. You know, they take them into their wellness check. You know, what quartile are they weight and height? They never ask about sleep. You know, it's the focus is more on vaccinations. And, and I'm not going to get into you know, the politics of that and what's right and what's wrong and 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 because uh, that's its own discussion. I'm bringing that up just what's the focus of the pediatrician now? It's very different than even when I was a kid and my mom would take me to the pediatrician to the experience that moms are having now or dads, you know, with their kids. And there is this lack of, of really looking at, you know, root cause. It's like, oh, don't worry, they'll grow out of it. I mean, let's just look at tonsils. Tonsils and adenoids are important lymphatic tissue that help us develop our immune system very early in life, right? And so uh, we went through this period in medicine where we would just 50, 50% of the time, we just remove the tonsils as it so cavalierly like, yeah, that solved the problem. And yet studies looking back retrospectively, six, seven years down the line, most of those kids ended up relapsing, having problems where the tonsils weren't really the problem. Um, but it affects how we breathe and we sleep because, you know, your mouth breathing, you can't breathe through the nose. I'm more of a uh, let's understand this problem very early on and obviate it by understanding how we're supposed to breathe and sleep and grow. And, and then we could really start the, the discussion there is what's the environment? What are the things that we can do to foster optimal development, to right. be the best genetic expression of your parents? And optimal development, it, it means function, health, and how you look. It's all tied together. As, form as follows how beauty, how no you, question about form it. Form follows function, form follows beauty. I, 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 for, yeah, form follows I mean, function, uh, beauty is... Uh, uh, to a great extent. Uh, right. 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 Okay. So we had said earlier that that there's this kind of general um, uh, testament that how your face looks, it's based on your genetics. It's just like whatever your parents and I have good looking parents. I'm good looking. I don't like it, whatever. But you're saying, actually, no, someone with the same genes, we could do a, a twin study on this, right? Someone with the same genes. Um, based on their environment, uh, could express epigenetically either uh, their face could grow, they could become really attractive, really healthy, or maybe more unattractive, not as healthy, based on this first thousand days of life, epigenetically, environmentally, um, you were saying like there's like side sleeping, um, C-section versus... Many, a myriad of factors. Okay, and so I guess 
we can go over uh, in the future what you can do for your kids or for yourself um, uh, to, like you said, optimize your growth and development to become the best genetic version of your of your parents. Yeah, I, I, I think that's an excellent topic. And I'm I, I will say that we'll do it based on understanding the evidence and the science. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's not like an opinion I'm going to come up with. Mm-hmm. I'm going to base it on the science and the understanding, understanding craniofacial biology, understanding, um, you know, how it's all supposed to happen. No question. The blueprint that we received from our parents is exactly that, the blueprint. So you can have a blueprint that you yeah. give to three different contractors yeah. that might perhaps mess it up mess it up or interpret it yeah. differently right so just think of that as uh, those are environmental risk factors but there are twin studies to show absolutely monozygotic di- uh, uh, identical twins separated in, in in different environments that could look quite different and even even under the same roof there are uh, epigenetic inputs that are slightly different that can express differently as well. So, um, so yes, nature is super important. It, it provides the predilection and the blueprint, um, but the environment, as it turns out, we learned this after the human, human Genome Project that concluded in 2003, uh, at a cost of a billion dollars back in those, you know, in those dollars, mm-hmm. uh, that we really had very few uh, answers to a lot of what we thought were genetically driven conditions. Um, and that what we did discover is that what was more important was the environment, what's called epigenetic, which in Latin means above the gene. And uh, what that does is it's the upregulation or downregulation of the expression of any allele or a set of alleles or genes um, to uh, express disease or health or or whatever the case may be, and so those are uh, that's it's a fascinating topic. In fact, at this point, uh, a lot of industry is involved in the epigenome project, um, and uh, we're finding out with cancers, a lot of cancers now, a lot of the biologics are understanding how to turn on or off a gene without chemotherapy. Um, using uh, monoclonal antibodies and, and, and things like that. So molecular biology, our understanding, um, has really advanced a lot. And the answer is there, is really the chromatin that really the genes are wrapped, around, uh, are wrapped in. It's the, the, uh, the way the, the DNA unfolds. Okay. So how you eat. Uh, for example, can have many methyl groups that can upregulate or downregulate gene activity, either through pre-transcriptional uh, methylation or post-translational acetylation. There are these molecular biology processes that affect uh, gene expression. So basically, certain genes are turning on or off based on how yes. you live. Yes. Okay. Right. Or, or environmental risk factors. Mm-hmm. Um, activity. Um, muscle activity, um, how you breathe, <clears throat> things that so we could talk about in more detail. Absolutely, yeah. let's go over that yeah. that soon. But I think for you know for this particular uh, podcast, I think pretty much we, we covered you know the the topic with some broad strokes. Yes, and I upper airway I, resistance syndrome. I think that's something that we need to dedicate one one uh, episode or a few just on that topic because it is very prevalent in our population now. So it's not like just 10% of us have it. It's uh, much higher than that. Uh, There are some studies to show maybe 70, 80% of us have uh, inspiratory flow limitation. So today talking about craniofacial growth concepts, you start understanding how we've radically changed from when we uh, um, populated the Fertile Crescent to where we are now 12,000 years later, that that kind of creates the context to talk about these topics, to say, why is it so common? Well, we just talked about it today. 
you know, I hope that helps. We got we got worse looking and a little bit sicker, but you know, <laughs> we're living longer, so yeah. <laughs> but at what cost? Right. You know, I mean that that's the the political question. You know, is really our healthcare system doing us a favor? I would argue no. In the United States, we pay more than anybody, twice of anyone else on the planet, and yet we're not even in the top fifty in our health. So well, I'll leave it at it, that. It was interesting what you were saying. You're saying. The healthcare system is treating based on seeing symptoms. So like, oh, symptom, you have crooked teeth. Let's just fix it with some braces. But like, why were your teeth crooked in the first place? Or like, you see something, oh, I can treat that with the medication, boom. But why did I have that problem in the first place? Yeah. We don't really do preventative. Exactly. When you start seeing this, you see it. Okay. A person has really crooked teeth. The next thing I'm thinking of, I bet you they have a deviated septum. They can't breathe very well through the nose. I bet you they're not sleeping very well. Mm. I bet you they sleep on their stomach. I bet you they snore. I bet you they have some anxiety, irritable bowel syndrome. I bet you they have a higher risk for TM. You can kind of go through what we call the medical comorbidities. And that's just not what we're used to doing for our patients. If you're a dental profession, you're kind of drilling down literally and figuratively Mm. on the white structures we call teeth. And and uh, and so I say, let's step back. Everything that goes around the teeth. Yes. Makes the teeth look like, okay, that's exactly. exciting. We'll go over that more next time. Yeah, yeah. I'll and end it like this. It's kind of like you know, we're worried about the uh, this analogy I like to use. It's like we're worried about how neat the uh, chairs are on the top deck of the Titanic when there's a big gash in the <laughs> hull. That ship's going down. So let's get into a little bit more in the next pat- podcast. And um, thank you. Great. Awesome. We hope that the format of our casual conversation provides a construct for how to think about the problem rather than just saying how it is. In order to stimulate a continuing conversation and give room to ask your own questions or comments, please follow us on Facebook at Mark A. Cruz DDS or on Twitter at Mark Cruz DDS.